So uh, we are, we preach through almost the entire book of First Peter. You'll notice that as you open up your Bible, you're in chapter 5. And not only are you in chapter 5, but you're like right, right at the end of chapter 5. Uh, Peter, after basically writing this amazing epistle, it is brilliant. It has been something that has been so encouraging to my soul. And I hope that you have felt uh, the same way as we've been in our series in Peter. Uh, and he comes to the last bit and he's giving a charge to the church. But not only is he giving a charge, but he's actually, in a way, recapping everything that he's wanted us to learn. And he's recapping it right at the end uh, of his address to the shepherds. And he wants them to understand what true humility is. And true humility, first and foremost, requires vulnerability. It requires you to subordinate your needs below that of others And the fear that takes over us when we do that is we feel like our needs are not going to be taken care of. That we're going to subordinate ourselves, care for other people, and we're going to be left alone. That no one's going to pay attention to us, that no one's going to care about what we do, and we're going to feel like this wrung dry sponge and left to wither in the sun, taken advantage by other people. After all, we follow Jesus, and let's face it, His humiliation was pretty drastic. It was pretty extreme. If you read books like Philippians and what Paul describes as what we need to go through as well, we think, this is hard. And yet we all made this decision, didn't we? When we followed Christ. Because when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To come and be humbled. To give up all for his sake. And to embrace the same call to bear his cross. But that is not all so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. The proper time. And many think that we suffer here on earth merely to be exalted on the last day. That is true. I am not bashing that at all. That is exactly the case. But Jesus says, if you've given up things for me, you will not fail to receive both in this world and the one to come. Honor. Exaltation. God promises not merely to take care of us when we have been wrung dry and left out in the sun, but all throughout our lives, in each and every instance, and each and every moment. And Peter is giving a word here to a series of churches who are no stranger to hardship and persecution. I mean, they have been going through some pretty gnarly situations. They have been under some immense persecution. Some of them have died, but the church would rather die than renounce Christ. And they've proven that. They've proven that through what they've endured. They've proven that they would rather die than forsake their kings. And sometimes this little lie can so easily creep in that God doesn't really care or that He has forgotten about them. And we know that that's not true. We know in our heads that is not true. God loves us. He promises to be with us. But sometimes our hearts are a little late to the party, aren't they? They haven't come along the whole way. Our head tells us, heart, believe this thing. And our hearts go, ugh. That's a bit hard. I don't want to do that. Well, this is why this part of Peter is so important. We can forget as you get through the bulk of the book and you've read just, read just brilliant thing after brilliant thing, amazing thing after amazing thing in God's Word, and you come to the end and you lose a little bit of steam, don't you? Those last kind of passages feel like Peter is tying up a few um, bows, but basically he's done. But that's not the case. This passage I want for you guys to be near and dear to your hearts. I want this to be a thing that you open up often and come to and read again when you need it because let's face it we do need first peter 5 a lot more than we think well let's get into it my first point is this humility is toward one another 
So we're going to be looking at humility at the start. Peter wants us to be clothed in humility, to humble ourselves. Uh, and uh, we've all heard humility described this way. I mean, I've even done it in my sermons and there's nothing wrong with it. But it's this idea that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You guys have heard that, right? I've said it. So I know you guys have heard it. And it is true. It is good. But I do take issue with this statement. I do take issue with it because it tells you what humility, um, it doesn't tell you what humility does, it only tells you what humility isn't. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, and we think it is um, thinking about yourself less, but that's not, that's not necessarily true. Humility isn't just about thinking of yourself less. You can have no thoughts about yourself and still fail to exercise true humility. It's because humility cannot be practiced in a vacuum. You don't practice it by yourself. If I isolated you and threw you into the Alaskan wilderness and for 20 years you were never going to see anyone else, it doesn't mean just because you're isolated that you're humble. It doesn't mean just because you might not be thinking about yourself when you're all the way over there, you, you might be humble. Humility cannot be practiced in a vacuum. It is impossible without someone else in the equation. There has to be someone else there. There has to be something to make reference to. And this is why Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. The real test of humility comes not when we are untested, safe, and secure in our private areas, not when we're scrolling Facebook. Humility is tested when you have someone to submit to, a correction to receive, an offense to cover over. Humility will show itself in a person when they actually care about someone else more than their own desires. And the training ground for Christ-honoring, gospel-saturated humility is when there is a toward-one-another aspect of it. This is another one of those one-another passages of the Bible that we need to know backwards and forwards. When assessing your humility, whether or not you are humble, it's best not to look inwardly. It's best not to look at your attitudes or motivations because they can deceive you. The best place you need to look is outwardly at what we actually do. Our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. His point is this, your evil heart will show itself in fruit. It has to come out of you. It will come out of you. That's why these one another passages are important. Are you submissive to the teaching of the church? Or do you always seek to qualify it and find something wrong with it? Are you assessing everyone's godliness, comparing yourself to others, and seeing whether or not you are better in your walk than them? Do you find yourself easily correcting others, but when others correct you, you get angry and you get defensive? Can you often see how God is speaking to you in a sermon, or are you always thinking about how the sermon applies to someone else? Because humility shows itself in the one another passages. The one another aspect is so important. This is why the Apostle Paul can point to the humility of Jesus. See, Jesus was humble because he subordinated his interests to the interests of others. Well, at least these apparent interests. Philippians 2, 4-8 says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to notice two things about the humility of Christ in this passage. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born as a man. 
The second thing, he became obedient even to the point of death. And Paul is encouraging the church, have this same mind, practice these same things. And it starts, first and foremost, by emptying yourself. It's hard to do. It is very hard to do, but if you're not empty, you cannot be filled. Thomas Watson, the famous uh, Puritan, says it this way. He says, till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ. He is full already. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first, first emptied before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Humility is not simply thinking less of yourself, but emptying yourself, causing you to become a servant to others and obedient to God. The most humble men and the most humble women are those who are servant-hearted, not expecting anything in return, just wanting to bless others for their sake and invest spiritually into them for their sake so that they grow and that they flourish and that they do well, even if suffering comes upon them. Often we, we want wealth for each other, don't we? I mean, I, I doubt there's anyone who sits in this room who looks around at the people here and thinks, I don't want wealth for you. We all want wealth for each other. But really, the rubber kind of hits the road when would we be willing to suffer for them? Would we be willing to undergo some hardship to bless them? Because that is how Jesus blessed us, by undergoing the most immense, immeasurable suffering so that we could walk free. And we imitate him only in the slightest, the smallest form, when we take on board suffering for other people. And it is most pleasing to God. And that's what Peter says, clothe one another with humility. Uh, clothe yourself in humility towards one another. That's what it means. And God promises to raise these people up. Because Philippians 2 doesn't end there. Which is my second point, humility is the path to exaltation. Now, the Bible seems to hold humility and exaltation as kind of two ends of the spectrum. Now, because of this, people believe that even desiring glory or desiring honor or desiring some exaltation is wrong. And the opposite of desiring exaltation is humility. And, and we kind of have this dichotomy, this view in our mind. And yet, when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest, Jesus doesn't necessarily rebuke their desire to be great. He just rebukes their motives and their methods. Have a listen to Luke, chapter 22. After Jesus learns that the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest, he gives them this lesson. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. And he goes on to say in verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We must confess, we haven't really heard that much on that last bit. You hear a lot on the first bit, don't you? That we ought not to lord it over others, that we ought not to um, seek to be the greatest in terms of domineering over other people. But you rarely hear Jesus' final point. You guys have suffered with me and I will reward you. You will sit at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones. We don't really dwell there, do we? It kind of feels a bit awkward. We don't like it. You see, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, spent a lot of time learning 
these things at the feet of Christ. He understood that the path to glory, the path to being honored by God, is not by being prideful, it's not by striving to get on top or lording it over others, but it's through our service. It's not the avoidance of glory, but humility unlocks true glory for us. And that's a really important thing to learn. Jesus promises us in Luke 18, 14, everyone who exalts himself, as Paul says, uh, sorry, Peter says, God opposes the proud, right? They will be humbled. God will oppose them. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. Humility is not diverting every compliment you receive or boasting about how weak you are when someone admires your good qualities. Humility is about serving and using your talents and gifts for the good of others, not for your own benefit. That kind of humility will stop you from falling in love with the praise and admiration of men, and rather you will fall in love with the praise and admiration of God. Jesus says in John 5:44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We feel a bit odd talking about this, don't we? Seeking glory from God? It kind of seems a little blasphemous, doesn't it? I mean, we're, what, like we believe in solely Deo Gloria, right? We believe that all glory goes to God alone. So the idea of what Jesus is saying here, that you're not seeking glory, uh, you ought to be seeking glory that comes from the only God rather than seeking it from men, it kind of makes our reformed brains break a little bit. I mean... We're kind of taught to seek God's well-done, good and faithful servant. I mean, we know we ought to please Him and to earn His favor, but we never really feel like we can earn His favor and, be, and have our God be pleased in us and have Him give His favor to us. And brothers and sisters, do you want to please God? That's a good, good question, because, and we all should know the answer to that. Yes, of course we do. But do you believe you can have God's pleasure. That's a bit different. Do you want His good pleasure and His praise at your work, the things that you've done, the good deeds that you've done for His kingdom, the striving, the toil, all the efforts? Or has this idea been so driven out of you that you don't even believe it's possible to receive the well-done, good and faithful servant? Of course, we are sinful, and of course, there is nothing good in us, and that is all good doctrine, that is all good theology, but if your theology doesn't end with a well-done, good and faithful servant, then your doctrine needs a bit of work. Peter promises that we will receive exaltation in the proper time, both here and in the world to come. And likewise, Christ promised the same to his disciples and to Peter. But how does one receive it? Well, we receive it through Christ, and we know we do. He makes all our striving acceptable to God. All our efforts become pleasing to Him. Not in a way that takes away all credit from you in the sense that you have uh, nothing to bring before God, that you've earned no talents with the talents that God has invested in you, but as a way that funnels the praise due to you into greater praise for God. That might make no sense, but stay with me for a second. You don't look at the moon, you don't look at the stars or the sun or the mighty Himalayan mountain range and create this dichotomy between their glory and God's glory. You don't come before them and say, wow, these things are glorious. Oh, wait, no, they're not. Only God is glorious. Scratch what I said. They're not glorious at all. We don't say that, do we? Well, I hope we don't say that because the moon is glorious. The sun is glorious. All of God's creation is glorious and it shines forth the glory of God. 
But all these things funnel their glory up to God. So when you are doing well, when you are pleasing God, when you are humble, He will exalt you because that glorifies Him. It honors Him because He is your author and He is your maker and He takes great pleasure in you. And through doing that, you honor Him. You glorify Him. You make much of Him. See, Philippians chapter 2 doesn't end with Christ's humiliation, it ends with His exaltation. From verse 9 it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul's trying to tell us, look at the pattern of Christ. He suffered, and he suffered far more than any of us could ever possibly imagine, but his exaltation is far greater than any of us could ever possibly get to. But he says, here's a pattern that you must follow. Humiliation, exaltation. We won't ever receive an exaltation like Christ, but Peter promised us, didn't didn't he? Subsequent glories in chapter 1 ties it all the way through that our obedience to God will be rewarded, that our humility before each other will be rewarded, that He is well pleased and He will exalt us both here and in the age to come. You have a real glory about you that will earn the praise of God. A real value that God will admire But this glory funnels up to the one who made you, who kept you, provided for you, redeemed you, died for you. And that glory will either be destroyed by your sin and pride or fostered and grown by your humility. Humility is the fertile soil by which we grow up into Christ. And Peter promises us that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in the proper time. And this shows us two things. Number one, God is mighty. He refers to God as having a mighty hand. And number two, God promises to exalt the humble in His own time. That proper, you know, in the proper time. We need to remember that phrase. It requires us to trust God. When we are busy serving and learning and prioritizing others over ourselves, it can feel like God doesn't notice and that He doesn't care. It can feel like there will be no reward and that you wasted your life serving others and no one will notice, not even God. And to some extent, our humility will just result in that, humility, being brought low, subordinating our needs underneath those of others. But Peter promises us at the proper time. You can't just put in one week of humility and then hope for all the exaltation that God has promised you. We may put in a month of humility or one year or decades. Might be required from the Lord before he shows up in a big way. And it might take a long time and it might produce slow results, but those results will be as immovable and lasting as God himself. God does care. He sees and he rewards, which is my third point. Humility is true freedom in Christ. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter knows that this humility comes with a cost, doesn't it? Suffering injustice for the cause of Christ, whether it be at the hands of the government, 
Or we saw in 1 Peter, our spouse, our employers, our church. These things can be a heavy burden to bear. All array of uncertainties spring up that can cause us to have sleepless nights worrying about what might happen. And so Peter kind of, I guess he, he, he's catching this. He knows where they might head. And so he paraphrases Psalm 55 verse 22, where it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Paul's got, uh, Peter's got two things for us to do. Well, he's got one thing for us to do and one thing for us to believe. First, he's calling us to cast our anxieties on God, not merely some of them, not just the big ones, but all of them, every single one of them, all our worries and concerns and fears and distresses, hurl them at God, cast them, throw them. I want you to notice something. This isn't so that you can have a good chin wag in your prayers and tell God about all the things that are bothering you and then walk away with all those things still bothering you on your shoulders. It's not sharing with him your concerns and your worries. It's throwing them on him, throwing them from you to him. They have to be off you at the end of prayer. If they're not off you, you haven't cast your anxieties on God. You're removing them from yourself. You're putting them on God. And it requires trust. And it's not easy to do. You have to learn how to do this. It's hard. Psalm 55:22 tells us, cast your burden on the Lord. If you were carrying a large weight vest, trudging up a mountain, and it was getting too difficult to bear, and someone comes along and says, oh, give me that, I'm going to carry it for you. You don't spawn another weight bag and put it on him as well, and then you both walk up with the weighted vest up the mountain. That's not carrying your burden, that's just carrying another burden. You've just multiplied your burden by two. You have to take it off. You have to give it to God. The word casting here in Greek literally means throwing something. A good baseball pitch. That's what you want to be thinking of. It's not casting your concerns on God if you keep a good tight hold of them. You're just sharing them with Him. But He wants more than for you to just share with Him your burdens. He wants your burdens because He can carry them. So you might say, well, this sounds really good, Cody, but I don't even know how to do that. I could think, imagine a mental picture of me wrapping all my burdens into a ball and just like hurling them at God. And then I walk away from prayer and they're still there. And I'm like, I thought I just got rid of you. And it's still there. It's come back. Well, it works like this. Firstly, you have a concern. Secondly, it's a concern you can't do anything about right? You can't do anything about it. You can't fix it or you need help to fix it. The Romans might be threatening to cart you off to jail. Your boss might fire you if you don't wear it purple. Your nasty auntie is coming over and going to critique everything you do. You can't stop her from coming. Your spouse has been moody and nothing is working. But whatever your concern is, you give it to God. You tell him about it and you say this. You don't have to say these words, but something along these lines. God, I'm at a loss. I don't know what else I can do. It's on you now to solve it. Best of luck to you, and then you walk away. Maybe don't say the last bit. But it's up to God now. He has to solve it. It's, 
Oh, the burden's off. You don't have to solve it. You don't have to do anything anymore about it. You can't control it, so it's on God. He's going to do something about it. And you just feel a sense of relief because you're like, yeah, God is going to do something about it. He is going to fix it for me. That's called faith. It's called trusting Him. And every time you think about that concern and it comes back up, you say to yourself, it's all right. I've given it to God. He's trustworthy. He's going to do something about it. And he might do something about it now. He might do something about it later. He might do it in 10 years. And if you are still anxious and worried and concerned and losing sleep over it, it's a good indicator of two things. Number one, you haven't given it to God. And number two, you don't trust God. Or sorry, or number two, you don't trust God. Let's be real. A lot of us think the latter. We don't think that God can handle it or we don't think he cares enough to handle it in a way that will actually benefit us. And we're worried about him doing it on his timeline because we're not patient enough. We know, oh, I don't want to give it to God because if I give it to God, he's going to take forever. He's not going to do anything about it for like 10 years and teach me some lesson about patience. I don't want to give it to him. But let's say, let's say you're right. He is going to take 10 years. He is going to make you be patient for it. Isn't that better than your solution? I'll tell you why it's better. Because it's God's solution. And His solution is better than yours. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Do we feel that? Just a good question to think about. Because some of us would write here, cursed are all those who wait for him. We kind of believe that, don't we? I don't want to wait for God. It's not blessed to sit around and wait, do nothing. But Isaiah is telling us that our faith shines through when we patiently wait for him because we trust Him and we believe Him and we know that He cares for us, especially in situations that are completely out of our control, situations like the churches in Asia Minor are facing. Why should we wait? Well, listen to what Peter says. He says, casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Do you believe that He cares for you? good. If you belong to Christ, Peter tells us explicitly through the Holy Spirit that God does indeed care for us. That is truth. It's not mere sentimentality either. The word care here carries the phrase of paying attention. It almost literally means paying attention, invested, giving thought to. He's not absent. He knows the situation far better than you do. And he knows how best to navigate it. He knows how to sanctify you through it and how to bring up good through the hardship. Faith requires us to give up our anxieties and actually cast them on him. Why? Because he cares and he knows and he's paying attention. It doesn't take him by surprise. You're not praying to him and casting your burdens on him. And he's like, that's a lot. You've been dealing with this for this whole time? I had no idea. He doesn't say anything like that. He knows He cares. He's been paying attention. 
Oh, how much damage we do to ourselves and our lives by just refusing to believe this. How often do we fall into so many pits and snares because we just don't believe that God loves us in this way. We refuse to cast our anxieties on God because at the end of the day, we don't trust Him. Brothers and sisters, there's a word for it. It's unbelief. It's sin. It's not something to make friends with or make excuses for. It's something that is an affront to the living God. And I'm sharing that with you guys, being someone who does it too. God has so much freedom for us in Christ that if we just trust Him, we'd, we'd get it. If you just cast them off and give them to Him. Christ says in Matthew 6, 27, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And he goes on in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice how Jesus redirects the anxious person to the character of God. See, the Gentiles, they all worry and stress about their needs and their wants and all the things, and that makes sense because they don't know God. They don't know who He is. They're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But we are. We do know God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We ought not to live as the Gentiles do. We know that our Heavenly Father knows all our needs. Jesus is basically saying to you right now, God knows you need all that stuff. So don't use all your mental energy and all your effort and all this stuff, worrying about this stuff. Just get on board with the mission that God has called you to and God's going to handle the rest. Don't worry about it. God's got it. We have to believe that. Christ directs us where we ought to be in humility, seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness first. God's going to take care of the rest. He'll make sure that we're well provided for. Is it risky doing this? Well, from the world's perspective, definitely risky. They would say, don't do that. That's bad advice. You can trot in a financial expert and he'll tell you, definitely don't do that. That's the quickest way to become poor. But when you know God, you know it's not risky at all. In fact... You know that there is far greater risk not trusting Him than there is in trusting Him. If you know God, you know that He is truly trustworthy. He loves us. He takes care of us. He will reward us. There is glory and honor waiting for all those who jump into the fray. So brothers and sisters, let's be doers and not just hearers. Let's act in humility towards one another, seeking the good of each other, trusting that God will exalt us in the right time. We ought not to expect prominence or work for worldly ex exaltation, but trust God as we cast our cares onto Him, knowing and believing that He does indeed love us dearly. Let's receive these words from Peter. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that through Christ we have the perfect image of humility, that through Him we have the most amazing uh, sense of your trustworthiness. You did not abandon your son to the grave, but you vindicated him and rewarded him and rose him again from the dead. And Father, we know that in our lives, in our death to ourselves, we have, been, we, we have risen again with Christ and are seated in the heavenly places. 
that in our humility we know that we will be exalted and we long for the day in which you exalt us over many things. Our Father, there are many in this room that have all manner of anxieties. And some of these cares and worries have been on their shoulders for years. I pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, today would be the day that they lift them off your shoulder, their shoulders and give them to you. I pray, Lord, today would be the day that they start to say to that anxiety, God's going to sort you out. Lord, would we trust you and love you and know you all the more through this word given to us in Peter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.